I'm going to open us with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day to be able to be here at church to worship you and serve you. And now, Lord, as we return to our study of Joel, I pray that you give me wisdom to accurately deal with the truths that are here. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us take away the lessons that we need to apply to our lives so that the truth of your word will help us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our study in the section of Joel, of Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. And as I introduced this new section last week, it really is a transition point in the book. All of chapter 1 was the judgment that God inflicted upon Judah for their disobedience. We don't know the full scope of their disobedience, but they had turned their back on God in some way, and God eliminated everything they had through multiple locust plagues. Their crops were destroyed. They no longer could offer the daily sacrifices in the temple. They couldn't worship God. They didn't have food to eat. It was complete devastation. But, even in the midst of the devastation, God said something worse is coming. And the beginning of chapter 2 is that dark, ominous warning of a future invasion by an army that will do even more damage than the locust. But God held out the chance of mercy. And beginning in Joel chapter 2, verse 12... Continuing on to verse 17, God was saying, but it's not too late. Yet even now, he says in verse 12, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And he's clear, my character is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding loving kindness, Relenting of evil, not that God does evil, but relenting of the calamity that God brings about in judgment. So they had this invitation to repentance, and as I introduce this next section, as we get through the rest of the book of Joel, it's no longer this stark warning about judgment, but rather we're seeing something of the future of redemptive history. Certainly there's going to be more talk of judgment, of a final judgment of God's enemies, but we're also seeing something of the hope that is available to God's people who genuinely repent. And as we get into this, I broke down the outline in just a simple three-part outline for this entire section, verses 18 to 27. It's God's response to the genuine repentance of his people. God's response to the genuine repentance of his people. And the first point was that God's compassion abounds, and this is all we were able to cover last week, which is verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. In other words, it seems clear that the repentance called for in verses 12 to 17 has in some measure occurred. And the Lord is going to respond. Now, as I mentioned last week, scholars disagree on the translation, and I read from the New American that talks in a future sense, the Lord will be zealous for his people and will have pity on his people. And then the ESV says, then the Lord became jealous, past tense, for his land and had pity on his people. And as with a lot of the book of Joel, it seems that there's a both and, not an either or going on. In other words, there's an aspect that the way the language is presented 
is that the ESV is correct. There's an aspect where it seems clear the implication is that repentance occurred. So some of these things are occurring at the time for the people of Joel's generation. And yet, as will become more clear as we go through things today, and I'm really going to emphasize something today about this that I alluded to last week, there's another aspect of Joel that's really looking for a future fulfillment that hasn't occurred. So I think the best understanding is that some of these things happen to a certain extent at the time, and yet there are other aspects of it that are only going to happen in the future. But the Lord cares for the land. There's something special about the piece of real estate that God promised initially to Abraham and where he sent his son to live and die. And God particularly loves his people. Even though the nation of Judah, the overall nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, the primary recipients of this letter, continually turned away, God loves his people. And he wanted to have pity. In fact, he did have pity in response to their repentance to a certain degree. Again, I think there's an aspect where this was fulfilled and the judgment that was promised at the beginning of chapter 2 didn't occur to that generation, but there's another aspect where the people turned their back on God eventually and the things came to pass. God answers the prayers of his people. He cares about what happens to them. The wages of sin is death, and yet God shows mercy to sinners because He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. So that's just a quick summary of what happened last week. The recording is online. You can always go back and listen to it if you missed it last week. But that brings us to the second response to the genuine repentance of His people that God has. The second response is this. Not only does God's compassion abound, God's blessings overflow. God's blessings overflow. I neglected to say this in my introduction. As I reminded you, my points come from verses 18, 19, and 20, and verses 21 to 27 just to elaborate on them. So you'll see me going back and forth as we continue on in our teaching. But today we're not going to go beyond verse 19, which says this. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Again, this is going back to the call to repentance. God said, Repent, even now, if you'll turn to me. And verse 19 is making clear, The Lord will answer and say to his people, Now, there's a sense in which I was quickly jumping into what God was going to say in my mind. And I was thinking about the grain and the new oil and wine and all that to talk about. But one of my seminary professors actually wrote a commentary on Joel that I go to a lot. It's a very good commentary. And he said something that I can't take credit for, but it did stop me to realize I'm jumping ahead of something And I'm losing the wonder with the statement that God will answer. They were told, cry out to God, ask for help, and God will answer. 
And what struck me that the thought was in this commentary was how amazing it is, something that we take for granted, and yet it's really remarkable that God hears our prayers. We were just in our prayer groups of different sizes, sharing our prayer requests. I take notes. It's hard to fathom that the God of the universe heard every single one of them, including the ones that we thought of that we didn't even share. I lose track of how many billion people are on the planet. I think it's about nine billion. That's a lot of people. I don't know if there are a billion believers. The gate's narrow, so I don't know how many genuine believers there are. But even if there's millions of them, it's hard to fathom that the God of the universe cares about every single one. He hears. And not only does he hear, but he answers. We know if we've walked with the Lord, he doesn't always answer the way we would like him to. But he answers every time in the way that's best for us. And with his people, it was very personal. The Lord will answer to us and say to his people, Behold, I. And again, we know certain things, but God is being very personal. Everything he's going to say is not wishful thinking. It's not hoping something. God is making clear this will come to pass. If God says it, and he's saying it, behold, I, this can't be more definitive and ironclad. And he's going to address two specific things. It's interesting because when I taught through it, verse 17, God gave the prayer that he wanted the priests to lead the people. If you recall, it was a national assembly, everybody's coming together, and God himself said, here's the words. Let the priests, verse 17, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? The last part was the motivation for the prayer. It's protecting the glory of God, for God not to be demeaned. But the prayer was really two parts. Spare your people, because physically they were in danger of being eliminated And don't make your inheritance, in other words, the nation of Israel, don't make them a reproach. And his answer in verse 19 is dealing with both of those, as will the rest of this section, but particularly there. Verse 19, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And again, it's challenging because we go through this over many months. But this really is going back to what the locusts had done. Specifically in verse 10, the second part of verse 10, it says, For the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. So you can see God saying, I'm going to make it. The grain's coming back, the new wine's coming back, the oil's coming back. Verse 11 said, Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The idea was, not only 
did the means of the daily sacrifices get taken away by the locusts, but the people were in danger of starving to death. This was wholesale destruction, spiritually, physically. And God's saying, because of repentance, I'm going to take care of things. I'm going to send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. Really, it's, it's a comprehensive picture of restoration. You had nothing. You couldn't do your daily sacrifices. You can't worship me. I'm going to give you that. You can worship. But beyond that, you're going to starve to death, but I'm going to intercede, and you're going to have it. Satisfied in full. It's not just you'll have enough. You won't be hungry. It, it's overflowing. It's abounding. Like an endless buffet, the food just keeps coming. Again, how this must have sounded to those peoples is remarkable. Because they had nothing except God's judgment on them. And now they're being told, you're going to be restored. It's going to be okay. You're going to have everything. I'm going to give it back to you. This is going from a hopelessness to an expectant hope. But it's not just that. God's going to do this, I believe he's saying, supernaturally. From a natural standpoint, when you wipe out everything that was wiped out, it's going to take a long time for the the vines to grow again. You know, you plant a vine, you're not harvesting it that week. Same way with the olive trees, everything about it, everything's destroyed. Naturally, it would take a while. God is saying, I'm going to intercede and I'm going to make this right and you're going to have everything. And like I said, and this is always challenging and it's difficult for me to articulate, there's a sense in which God was going to do that to a certain extent, but as I'll be talking about, he's going to do it even more in the future. So God's dealing the part about spare your people, the, you know, don't destroy the people, but then he's going to deal with the reproach of the nation or the uh, inheritance. He said, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. So God's going to send you grain, new wine and oil, you'll be satisfied, and I'm going to make sure that no one ever mocks my people again. There's a sense in which we could imagine, and there's hints of it at different times of the Old Testament, but in this particular context, you could almost imagine the other nations that were laughing at the misery of Judah. Sadly, even us as believers, I see this, that sometimes we're happy when Nations we don't like suffer. But the pagans were doing that to the point of almost being, where's your God? What's going on? And God's saying, that will not happen again. Because I'm going to intercede and people will know where your God is. But again, here's the challenge. I believe that there's a sense in which that was fulfilled at that time, but we know that after Joel was written, countless times Israel has been made a reproach. They were destroyed probably sometime after this by the Babylonian people and taken into captivity. You go farther ahead in history and you see empire after empire that was occupying and dominating The book of Daniel talks about kingdom after kingdom that's coming over the top. 
the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And that continued. In fact, in our lifetime, even though it wasn't the land of Israel, the Holocaust was the ultimate reproach of God's people, an attempt by Satan, even in our era, to humiliate and wipe out God's people. So when we see in Joel, and it says, I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, we have to be careful because obviously it doesn't mean that that was perfectly fulfilled at that time because it happened again. And some people, I've read this kind of stuff, would be quick to say, see, Scripture's not reliable because, of course, that's not true. That didn't happen. And God didn't mean that or that's not what God said. Well, that is what God said and God did mean it. And it is true. And so it's important, and this is the challenge when we're going through and we're interpreting Scripture and we're understanding Scripture, that we look at the overall context, that we look at the entirety of Scripture because it all goes together. It's all God's Word. And we have to make sense of the promises of God even if it's challenging and difficult. So we have to look there, and we always have to remember what Jesus says about the Word of God. Sanctify them in the truth, John seventeen seventeen. Your Word is truth. Titus 1, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. So how do we make sense of a passage like this that when you read one version, like the ESV, it's saying it already happened. And yet there's an aspect of which we know it didn't happen. It goes together, and I think, as challenging as it is, I believe there's an explanation. I think that God did preserve that generation to whom that original promise was made. I think that generation of people who genuinely repented were able to live out their lives and the country was secured and God did restore to them the means to worship and to live. And during their days, they were not again a reproach among the nations while they lived. Conceptually, it's not the same, but conceptually, to try and put it in the context of an Old Testament, it's kind of like when God promised in a different way the generation that came out of Egypt, okay, you're going to wander around and die, and then. Well, this is sort of the opposite of that. Okay, you're going to receive the blessings for your lifetime, but I think there's a future application that perhaps is the greater application because this is going to happen one day and it will never be undone. It seems clear when that generation died off, Judah returned to their sin and God ultimately brought about the judgment that he warned would happen for disobedience. But God says, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. And there's going to be a time when that is true for the people of God who are the descendants of Abraham, meaning the actual Jewish people. And I didn't originally have in my mind that I was going to go down this particular side road, but I, as I was preparing, I thought I need to do this. 
because we're at a point where we're interpreting things in a way that makes our church and others that believe like we do unique and different from other churches that would believe what we do about what we often refer to as reformed views on salvation. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of how I think this will be ultimately applied in a very overview way. Not, I'm not going to go, I could go into teaching this and it would take another year to just to teach all of this. So I'm going to overview, I'm going to cover an overview, a flyover, very general. But then I'm going to let you know that many people who would agree with us on certain things would completely discount this, I think wrongly. And they would say that what Joel talked about is not going to happen in the future. Not in the way that the Word of God, I believe, actually means it. So, I hope I can do this justice. But how will this ultimately be fulfilled? I will say this, and this is the part that separates us from a lot of other people, primarily people that would identify as Bible-believing from a Presbyterian standpoint, but not exclusively. God is not done with the nation of Israel. That doesn't sound as controversial to us, and yet it's a huge dividing line because a big segment of people that believe like we do and they preach the gospel like we do don't believe that God has any intention of doing anything for the nation of Israel. And when I say the nation of Israel, I'm not talking just about the geopolitical body right now that's in the Middle East. I'm talking about the descendants of Abraham, the physical seed, the Jewish people. But we do believe here at Lakeside that God does still care about the Jewish people. Not all of them are going to heaven yet. But there's going to come a time during the great tribulation period when God does a miraculous work. And there's going to come a time, and I'll tell you why from Scripture, why I say this, where all of the remaining Jewish people on the earth will repent and believe. I've shared for years that my best friend is a Jewish unbeliever. He's not religious. But he... Somehow or another, at some point, I shared with him, for example, in the book of Revelation, that there's going to be 144,000 witnesses from the tribes. And so he always tells me, well, maybe I'm one of them. It's like, you don't want to find that out. Because it means you're living through the tribulation period, which will be a horrific time. But there'll become a point where God will save whatever people of his are left. And he will return to the earth and he'll establish his kingdom. And during the millennial kingdom, that thousand year period when Christ is on the throne and he's ruling, no one will reproach his people. Jesus himself will defend and preserve and rule And when at the end of the millennium, according to the book of Revelation, when Satan tries to foster a rebellion, it will be crushed immediately. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. I believe 
that while Joel was pointing in part to what would occur to that generation, he's pointing more and fuller to the final fulfillment of this when Israel repents and believes. Now again, I could speak forever on this. I'm going to explain a little bit because I think it's relevant to us because I think it impacts our lives today and I hope I can articulate that in a way that makes sense. For us, when we think of the church, we think of us. And Steve is an anomaly. He happens to be Jewish, who's a believer, but we understand there's not many of them. On our prayer guide, there's a, a missionary we pray for who's in Israel, pastors of church, Menno Kalisher. We met on the trip to Israel, we met he and his wife. So there are some Jewish people who believe in the Messiah, but we understand for us those are anomalies, those are unusual. And yet the early church was just the opposite, it was all Jewish. In fact, if you recall the account, and I'll just allude to it, in Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, but it was Peter that first took the gospel there. Acts chapter 10, he was told in a dream to go to the household of Cornelius, a Gentile, and he went, and Cornelius said, I've got all the people here, God told me to call for you, Peter's here, and Peter's surprised, he said, I'm not even supposed to be eating with you, Home, okay. And it's interesting what happened after that. Acts 11, verses 1 to 3. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. There was no praising God at that moment. It's like, what are you doing? Those are Gentiles. There was no conception to that early church until God's intervention supernaturally. There was no conception in their mind that Gentiles had anything to do with anything. And in Acts 11, and goes on, eventually Peter explains to them what's going on in verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Okay, we didn't know. Now we know, okay, we'll praise the Lord. Really, that's simple for us because we're mostly Gentiles. We were granted that. Now here's where I'm going to try and tie together and I'm, I feel like I've got lots of plates in the air and lots of balls in the air and I'm not a juggler and I can't run fast enough to keep them spinning. But this is where I'm going with it. God promised in the Old Testament, He made tons of promises to Israel, including what we just read and studied today in Joel. He promised the nation of Israel all kinds of blessings. He promised them the Messiah. He promised them a future. He promised them peace and prosperity. On and on the promises of God go to the nation of Israel. And yet, most of God's people reject God anyway. They're not looking to the promises. They don't care about the promises. They're going about their lives. Yet the promises are still there in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, God made promises to Abraham. 
God made promises through Moses. God made promises through all the Old Testament prophets. On and on it goes. There's a large section of people that believe like we do on some issues that basically have said all those promises are gone when it comes to Israel. In fact, they'd say the promise of Joel 2.19 has nothing to do with the nation of Israel. They believe that God is done with Israel and he only cares about the church now. So in their mind, the Old Testament promises to Israel are really irrelevant to any Jewish person. There may be some application to the church, but they take the view that God was working through Israel and then God got tired of them, they're done, he's now doing the church and the church is all that matters and Israel is no more. And to that type of thinking, the current nation of Israel that we spend a lot of money and time supporting is really irrelevant to anything. It's just another country. Now I've got to speed up here because I'm going out of time, but I can remember as a little kid and I'm going to promise I'll tie all this together. And if I don't, you can go back and listen to it and tie it together yourself, but I think I will. Before I was a believer, my mom's mom, my grandma, I called her granny. She was a godly woman. In my office, in my closet, in my office at the church, I still have a prayer bench. People wonder if I'm Catholic. I'm not. I have that prayer bench because I remember my granny didn't know anybody watching praying. I knew she knew God. Even as a kid, it's like she's talking to God. That That's real. And I'm thankful to be saved and I look forward to seeing her one day. But I remember her telling me in relation to America, she said, one of the reasons we're blessed is because we're a friend of Israel. And she would always go back to Genesis 12, 3, where God said to Abraham, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And she would always say, in her simple way, God still cares about Israel. And yet again, there are many Bible-believing Christians that would do away with all of that. I'm going to quote from one of those denominations. It's a smaller denomination, but the thinking of it is consistent with most of Presbyterianism. At least the, most, the parts of Presbyterianism that still believe anything. There's a whole another section that doesn't believe anything. But it says, in other words, we believe that Old Testament Israel, and I'm quoting, in other words, we believe that Old Testament Israel was the church before Christ came. Paragraph 4 adds, To them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which existed together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity, blah, blah. In other words, the nation of Israel as it existed as the people of God in the Old Testament is no more. Therefore, we, and he spells out the name, holds that the political geographical entity known as Israel is not significant in and of itself. We pray for the blood descendants of Abraham, the Jews, that they might believe in Jesus, but our position would be that the, that the present-day nation of Israel is no more significant than any other nation. So to someone holding that type of viewpoint, the promises in the book of Joel to the people of Judah, to the people of God, are really irrelevant. Because in their mind, God doesn't care about them. Well, I mean, he doesn't mind. He doesn't want any to be lost, so he would be happy if they were saved. But the descendants of Abraham are irrelevant to God.
It's only the church. But it's a huge error and it has implications for how we live, in part because we live in a country that does support Israel. And that matters. God's work makes clear one day what's left of Israel will come to faith. I would encourage you. I think the book table has it. If not, we can get copies of it. Pastor Steve wrote a book called God's Plan for Israel. If you question or want to know any more about what I am saying, go read that because it will be better than anything I could have said. It's a great book. It's about Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the Apostle Paul, in Romans 11, verse 25, says this, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. There's a time when that's going to happen. Eventually, God is going to show mercy and His people are going to repent and it still matters to God what happens to Abraham's descendants. They don't get into heaven any different way than we do. You only get into heaven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, period. I'm not saying that later they're all going to be saved because God's making different rules. No, all that's going to happen is they're all going to repent and believe and they're going to turn to Jesus Christ as the Messiah like our pastor has done and like countless other Jewish individuals have done. But we need to understand that Israel still matters to God. And he says, I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. That's going to happen. There's a lot of turmoil still in store for that small country. But God still cares about the descendants of Abraham. God still cares about that real estate. Even though most of them reject him. And sadly, unless the Lord returns and the tribulation starts, most of them will die and go to hell. Because they've rejected the Savior. They'll find themselves with the Pharisees. But I'm convinced. Why did the Holocaust not succeed? It wasn't just because we defeated everybody. It's because God intervened. You're not going to wipe out His people. Why did Israel not get destroyed from the time of its founding when the Arab nation started invading in 48, or 56, or 67, or 73, or you can continue on. Because God still cares about His people. And we don't talk politics, or at least I don't talk politics here. And I always, probably, some of you wish I would stop, distinguish our being Christians from our being Americans, but... The blessings and freedoms we have, I do believe, are in part because of our attitude towards the nation of Israel. There's a lot that happens that doesn't bother me, but when I see any American president step back from Israel, that's when I get nervous. Because I realize I'm fine individually, but we don't want the hand of God any more on us even though our country deserves it. I'm convinced God still blesses those who bless Israel. 
And he still curses those who curse his people. So my side road's over. Like I said, if you have more questions about that, Pastor Steve does a better job of explaining things in more detail in that book, but it's a helpful book. So we've seen that God's compassion abounds, God's blessings overflow, and next week we'll get to our third point where we'll spend some time for a few weeks. So let me close us with prayer, and then we'll be done. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for another day. Lord, I pray that you will continue to help me as I study what are some very difficult and challenging things. And Lord, I pray that you'll give me words that help me understand how to explain it in a way that does justice to your word. Lord, I know that you care about your children who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You love the church, it's the bride of Christ, and I thank you, Lord, that we're a part of the church. And yet, Lord, it seems inescapable from the truths of your word that there's still a special place in your heart for the descendants of Abraham. So I pray, Lord, that you will save many Jewish people, including my friend Dave, my friend Scott. Many in this room know Jewish people. They would want to come to faith. Lord, pray that you would bring them to repentance. And in the meantime, Lord, I pray that you would protect your people. And I pray that you protect our country. Lord, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that you bless those who bless your people and you curse those who curse them. Lord, help us in all of this. Continue to be thankful for the salvation we have. And Lord, motivate us to share the good news of the gospel with those around us. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.